The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're going to talk about what is the gospel. We're going to talk about what is the gospel. We're going to talk about the content. Does it matter what content we share when we evangelize? Does that matter? Yes, we don't want to evangelize Mormons. Okay, all right, whatever the Mormon gospel is, I'm not sure it's good news, but uh, yeah, we don't want to be sharing that, or, or any of the other messages, it matters a lot, uh, but it also matters even within kind of broadly defined Christianity or evangelicalism, various things pass for the gospel that really aren't, and uh, it's good for us to think clearly about what message it is that we're sharing. Remember in Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So if we adulterate the gospel, if we change it in any way, we are not preaching that which is the ordained power of God for salvation. You know, there's a book in the Bible that talks about this directly, and that's the book of Galatians. Remember how the apostle Paul was very distressed with the Galatian church, and he said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by his grace and have embraced, in effect, another gospel, which is no gospel at all. You remember how he says that? And what was the problem in the church in Galatia? What had they done? They reverted to the law. Go ahead. They added works, specifically circumcision, as a doorway into a whole way of observing the law of Moses, a whole way of thinking about salvation. And uh, Paul says, uh, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than that which we preached. If we should change the gospel in any way, uh, let him be eternally condemned. Very strong statement. Again, I say to you, if anyone is preaching a gospel other than that which you receive, let him be eternally condemned. So it's very, very serious, uh, the need that we have to maintain the pure gospel. Now, there is a gospel message, but there are so many different ways uh, to come at it, aren't there? I mean, there's lots of different ways to explain the gospel. And uh, in this evangelism class, we're going to be talking about an outline of the gospel. You could write almost, I, I don't know that we could say infinite gospel outlines. Uh, there are going to be some themes that will be in every gospel outline. We'll talk about that. But I think one of our purposes here is to just try to understand, um, you know, what is the gospel? What is salvation? Uh, how are we sharing it? Etc., so that we can be clear what God's calling us to uh, do. So take your uh, outline and open to page three. Uh, and first, we're going to start negatively, what the gospel is not. I got this story from uh, Mark Dever's uh, book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And uh, I, I love this. Uh, I think it's humorous. Uh, the thing we're talking about here is not, not humorous, not funny to muddle up the gospel, but I think the story itself is. Uh, it's the story of Dr. Mudge. He says, it's so easy to get uh, the gospel muddled up if we're not careful. And it's disheartening to hear the muddled gospel proclaimed by many televangelists or so-called evangelical preachers or witnesses. A good illustration of how badly a story can be muddled is found in the experience of the editor of an English newspaper more than a century ago. He opened the daily paper to find that they had hopelessly conflated and mixed together two stories. One about a newly patented pig-killing and sausage-making machine and the other about a local clergyman, the Reverend Dr. Mudge, who was being presented with a gold-headed cane. The muddled story read as follows. This is in the newspaper. 
Several of Dr. Mudge's friends called upon him yesterday, and after a conversation, the unsuspecting pig was seized by the hind leg and slid along a beam until he reached the hot water tank. Thereupon, he came forward and said there were times when the feelings overpowered one, and for that reason, he would not attempt to do more than thank those around him, for the manner in which such a huge animal was cut into pieces was simply astonishing. The doctor concluded his remarks when the machine seized him, and in less time than it takes to write it, the pig was cut into fragments and worked into a delicious sausage. The occasion will long be remembered by the doctor's friends as one of the most delightful of their lives. The best pieces can be procured for 10 pence a pound, and we are sure that those who have sat so long under his ministry will rejoice that he has been treated so handsomely. My goodness. <laughs> Sounds like the story went through the pig-making machine or the sausage-making machine. At any rate, what a mess. And, uh, and yet, for all the humor, it, it is possible to muddle the gospel message, to, to mix it up so that we, uh, we really aren't preaching the true gospel. Uh, so let's talk about first negatively what the gospel is not. First of all, the gospel is not the message that I'm okay and you're okay and it's all okay. All right? If that's true, then why are we out there sharing the gospel? Uh, if everybody's fine and we're just kind of celebrating everybody's okayness, uh, we're wasting our time. Some people think of Christianity as something of a religious therapy session, a uh, little more than one of many ways to help people feel better about themselves. The gospel is then a message of reassurance for them, good news that we're basically fine and that we just need some help along the way. Huh. Or if we do need some reformation, the power for that reformation is within us, if we'd only realize it. We just need some motivation to unlock the goodness we all basically possess. And the gospel helps provide that motivation. Okay, that's not the gospel. I hope you know that. Okay, that sounds more like a, a psychotherapy session, right? In which uh, the therapist just continually reflects back what the individual is saying and uh, assures them that the answers are all there eventually uh, at, I don't know, $100 an hour or whatever it is they charge. Anyway, this is fundamentally wrong, as we've already discussed in the first week. We saw then the Bible says that people apart from Christ are spiritually dead. They're already under God's wrath, storing up ever greater wrath, constantly accused, not saved by the law and conscience, without a single good deed on their account, incapable of pleasing God, enemies of God, incapable of atoning for sin, blind and deaf to spiritual truth, and incapable of changing. So that's, that's the bad news we already covered. So how possibly could the gospel message be, I'm okay and you're okay? The Bible doesn't say that. Furthermore, the fact is that everyone will die physically, and that proves that I'm okay, you're okay is not true. The gospel must offer more to us than this, It's not, or it's not good news. Secondly, the gospel is not simply that God is love. This is a popular counterfeit, the message that God is love. J.I. Packer says, a half-truth passed off as the whole truth, becomes a complete untruth. It is true that God is love, but that's not all the Bible says. If the message of the gospel is simply that God loves you, then we're no better off than before. God has always been love, and yet lost people apart from Christ are still in need of a radical transformation in order to avoid eternity in hell. The fact is, many people see God's love as weak and ineffectual, as though God were little more than a well-meaning grandfather. This is not the message of the gospel, although God's love is a major component of our proclamation. Rather, we need to declare what kind of God he is and how such a God loves. God's love is different than human love, and it's up to us to proclaim the whole counsel of God to lost sinners. Okay? Thirdly, 
The gospel is not simply that Jesus wants to be your friend. I think he does want to be your friend, but that's not all there is to it. Some of the most damaging counterfeit gospels available today portray Christ as little more than a friend and a loving companion to help us through life's trials. This false picture completely misses the fact that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and that he comes to rule over the lives of sinners for their benefit. This view also omits Christ's violent death on the cross in our place under the wrath of God. Furthermore, this false gospel misses the element of sacrifice and self-denial which each person must make in order to follow Christ. Jesus said, anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, Matthew 10, 38. Jesus did not simply come to help us through life's ups and downs or to give meaning to life or to be a friend in need or even to clean up the mess we've made of our lives. What do you think it means when Jesus says there, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me? Okay. Is it? Completely die. Okay. To physically and spiritually and other things for him. Otherwise, we're not worthy of what he offers. Okay. Um, How does taking up your cross and following Jesus relate to being justified by faith alone apart from works? I mean, are we saved by our taking up our cross and following Jesus? Okay, you're saying no. How does it relate then? Yeah, go ahead, Chuck. So this is one of the many ways of explaining the life that follows true saving faith. And there are many such explanations. Love, for example, love for God and love for neighbor, all of those things. And so, um, you know, taking up cross and following, our cross bearing will not save us. It's so important that we realize that. However, we've got to tell people in the gospel, we're sharing the gospel, that their lives are going to be radically changed that they are going to be radically transformed, that things are going to be different for them. All right, fourthly, the gospel is not simply you should live right. The most common false gospel in the world is a gospel, so to speak, of human achievement, of morality and good deeds. You know, I had an encounter this week with with a man named Ernest, and uh, he's a a man I've been developing a friendship with, and he came and dropped by, and uh, we had 90 minutes to talk. And uh, he comes from basically a Christian background, but at this point he's um, also reading the Quran and trying to just find some meaning. He says his home base is Christianity and Christ, but he just is searching. And so I think the Lord brought him in. But uh, And as we were talking, um, we got to talking about basically good works. You know, Islam is the ultimate religion of good works. It's the religion of self-effort, of prayers and almsgiving and pilgrimages and all kinds of things that you do in order to save yourself. And it really uh, wasn't until I explained how it is that our good works can never be used to pay for bad, how uh, good works are are expected from God, um, how you can never say, well, you know, akin to saying to the judge when being held for murder, uh, I promise from this point forward never to murder anyone again. And the judge could rightly say, well, we expect that of all of our citizens. You can't trade that for the thing you've already done. Well, all right, how about if I give money to UNICEF? Uh, will that help? I mean, you can see how futile it is, the whole thing. Any good works you say uh, really um, are, especially before God, expected. You can't use them to pay for, for past uh, transgressions. Only the blood of Christ can. 
So therefore, any idea of self-reformation, trying to be a good person, all that, it's impossible because you can't pay for past sins that way. All right, uh, back to the outline. It says, for such people to be a Christian is to follow the golden rule, to live a good life, go to church, obey the Ten Commandments. The gospel is then seen as an additive to help us do what we are already capable of doing. This is completely wrong. The gospel calls us to repent and believe Christ, not to go out and clean up your life. The gospel is also confirmed by the power of the Holy Spirit to produce good works in us later by faith, as we just talked about a moment ago. The true gospel proclaims a different order, saved in order to do good deeds rather than good deeds in order to be saved. Isn't it incredible how God's done that? I mean, simply by faith, apart from works, he adopts you into the family of God, gives you a new nature, then tells you to live like a child of the king. And at the end of that life, he then finishes the work that he's begun in you through glorification. That's a beautiful thing. That order is so much better than uh, refraining to confer upon us adoption (laughs) until after we've proven ourselves by a life of good works, in which case we would be tempted to boast in heaven that we earned that adoption through our good works. All right, well, that's what the gospel is not. And frankly, there's a hundred other things the gospel is not. We could have gone on and on and on. What is the gospel? What are we talking about? Well, first of all, the word gospel means good news. And it is essentially a message that we proclaim. What makes this news good? Well, it is good news because it comes from a good God and results in incredible blessings for everyone who believes this good message. At its heart, the gospel uh, concerns God's gracious work to save sinners from their sins. The angel announced it first to Joseph. Matthew 121 says, you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Thus, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save us from our sins. The gospel then can only be understood properly by understanding salvation uh, properly. Now, if you look at Matthew 121, uh, look at the word because. All right. What does that tell you? It's very interesting. You will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Well, to us English speakers, it doesn't connect. There's something about the word, the name Jesus, something about that name in that language that conferred what Jesus had come to do. And literally, it's related to the word Joshua or the name Joshua, Yehoshua. Uh, basically, it's that Yahweh saves. Jesus saves. Or like it says in Jonah 2.9, Jonah 2.9 is Jesus' name. If you ever wonder, you know, if you want to try to understand the because in Matthew 121, you're talking about Jonah 2.9 salvation is from the lord that's what jesus name means salvation is from the lord it's not from you it's not in you it's not up to you salvation is from the lord so the word because in matthew 121 the name jesus means salvation is coming from god he's come to save us it says in isaiah the lord looked and saw that there was no one he was distressed to see that there was no one who could work righteousness. So his own arm worked salvation and his own righteousness sustained him. He just looks out over all of human race, the whole human race. How many people we don't have any idea? 10 billion, maybe more in all of history, no idea. He looks at all of us and says, there is none righteous, not even one. So if he's going to save, he must do it. He must save. And that's Jesus' name. He entered the, he entered the uh, human race. He entered human history because he saw that we could not be saved. And so he enters in that way. All right, now what is salvation? Well, this, by this time, I think you, you're very well aware. Salvation is a process. Salvation is a process in which rebellious sinners are forgiven for their acts of rebellion against the king and are changed into gloriously obedient subjects of the king, kingdom of God. 
Thus, the gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom. And the word kingdom and gospel can sometimes be used interchangeably. Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. See, gospel and kingdom, they're almost interchangeable. Now, are you troubled by that word process? Salvation is a process? I would hope by now, I've been here long enough teaching that you're not troubled by it. Salvation has a number of component parts. Salvation has a number of component parts, and we're not done being saved. That's why we are able to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's a process. One of the things I want, to, I want you Christians who are here learning how to be witnesses to realize you're still under the ministry of the gospel, and you will be the rest of your lives. The gospel's not finished with you yet. We're still in Romans, aren't we? <laughs> All right? I mean, there's just still more things. They're just, the gospel is a comprehensive message of salvation. And now in Romans 12, Romans 13, we're learning what kind of life saved people live. In the next sermon, God willing, on Sunday, we'll talk about how we relate to, to governments, human governments, Romans 13, 1 through 7. It's a big question. But uh, basically, there's no area, no corner of your life that's not going to be touched by the gospel. And we're still under it. And uh, how many of us can excuse ourselves from the need to go back to the cross again and again and again and remember what Jesus did for us there and to be renewed by it and strengthened? We are still under the gospel. Salvation is a process, all right? We get into trouble because I think what happens in, in simple Baptistic way or evangelical way, you think when you're talking about being saved that it's all got to do with that moment of first trusting Christ. And uh, they take the whole thing and boil it down. And they're right in saying that that aspect right there is no process at all. It's just something that happens instantaneously, what we call justification, where all your sins are forgiven. That's an instantaneous momentary thing. But the whole thing uh, is a process. It's not going to be finished until our, res- our bodies are like Christ, made glorious, resurrection bodies. And that's what we're looking forward to. Okay, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. I can see one way that our culture has actually been helped the church in this way because that idea that salvation is a one-time experience probably can only exist in a culture where people don't talk much about their problems and brush their problems under the rug mm-hmm. because now our culture has us all focusing so much on all of our psychological problems, all of our deficiencies, that as a Christian, you begin to want to look for answers. You want answers just like anybody, but you, you can turn to Christ. I mean, mm-hmm. man, I don't know what kind of appeal it would have, mm-hmm. you know, to just say <coughs> salvation is a one-time experience. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, salvation forces it. I mean, our, our culture continually has us looking at what a mess we are. Right. Right, the therapeutic culture, yeah. but nobody's ever getting healed. You know, it just keeps. The, uh, we're, instead, what we're doing is we're medicating it. We're medicating all the symptoms of the brokenness inside. Yeah, go ahead, Brevard. Certainly, when he was talking to a person, it seemed that he was coming to Christ and saved. He says, "Because I'm nonetheless yet unsaved." Wouldn't it be helpful to him to say, "You know, you're saved." Oh yes. Christ, you're saved. In other words, that's yeah. complete. Yeah, the Bible uses that kind of language. We have been saved, the Bible says. It uses that language. You were saved. It says that. It's a past completed thing. It uses that word. But it also says we are being saved. And it also says we will be saved. So use that language. Uh, make it simple. Say, I want you to know all your sins are forgiven. Or through, you know, sins are forgiven is a, is a good phrase. Just, just that, that all your, your sins are forgiven. But I think it's also good to know the truth because he's going to wake up the next morning and feel about like he felt two days ago. 
And he's going to have to find out at that point that he's got a long journey to go. And it's good to know that right from the beginning. Don't be shocked when you wake up tomorrow in the same bed, in the same house, struggling with similar things. But just know this, there's a lot of difference now. If you're now, if you have now become a Christian, you've got the indwelling spirit, your sins are forgiven, you've got the ability to understand scripture, and now we've got a journey to travel. So but that's, that's very good what Brevard said, that we can't assure somebody that they have been saved from their sin in that way. The Bible speaks that way. But the Bible speaks more than just that. It also says we are being saved. We're supposed to work out our salvation. And it says uh, in the future we will be saved from God's wrath through him in in Romans chapter 5. There's yet a future salvation on Judgment Day. I need that one, don't you? I mean, when 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 the moment comes and we stand accountable before God for everything we've ever said and done, we need a Savior then, don't we? We need to be saved from God's wrath at that future time. And so I, I look forward to that. And for us, we have to have a future salvation because that day hasn't come yet. Judgment day hasn't come. So we're looking forward to a future salvation as well. But what Brevard said is true. All right. Again, at the top of page six there, uh, it says, Therefore, if we are not calling people into a wholehearted obedience to the king and a repentance for past rebellions, <clears throat> we're not preaching the gospel Jesus preached. You know, this is so important. I mean, what's the center of the kingdom. I mean, that's not even the right way to put it, but if I say it the right way, you'll know what I mean. Who is the center of the kingdom? It's a king. And if you are repenting in coming into the kingdom of God and yet remaining a rebel against the king's rule, you have not entered the kingdom. So they must come under the king's authority. That's what they're being saved from is that rebellion. So we we, uh, are, are preaching a king. Therefore, when we get to the gospel outline, which I don't think we'll get to tonight, but we might, um, I, I tried and I desired to make it very God-centered, very Christ-centered, all right? Not very sinner-centered uh, because the whole thing is there was a God before any of us were around and God is our salvation. He is our future inheritance and so it's good to be very God-centered in what we're sharing and what we're talking about. They must be reconciled to God. All right, in order to understand the gospel better, therefore, we must understand the salvation process properly. What is salvation? Christians are frequently surprised to find out that salvation is a process that has more parts than justification or forgiveness of sins. In order to understand the true gospel, we must understand true salvation. The Bible declares that there are four major milestones or events of our salvation, that they do not happen all at once. The Bible also declares that everyone who is truly called by the Spirit will definitely finish the process and end up glorified in heaven. Romans 8, 29 and 30, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So therefore, the four major theological divisions of the salvation process are regeneration, justification, sanctification and glorification. And the gospel does all of them. You see that? It's the gospel work to do all four of us right to completion. You know how how it says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. Well, the uttermost, that's one translation, but I love that, saved to the uttermost. The uttermost is glorification. It's being uh, completely saved. That's where we're heading. All right, so what is regeneration? Well, uh, John 3, uh, Jesus speaks about being born again. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And so it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Basically, the Holy Spirit moves inside us, making us spiritually alive when we were spiritually dead a moment before. 
Just like that, you're alive spiritually. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You hear the gospel, you believe, you repent, and you are regenerated. Now, the word re, the prefix re means again, and G-E-N, gen means like Genesis, created. It's a new creation. We are made into a new creation. Uh, God makes us new. Something has changed within us, and it's done by the Spirit. Another great verse for this, uh, as we've talked about before, is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, uh, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God speaks into the darkness of our souls, and he says, let there be light, and there is light. There's a new creation. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will never extinguish it. Yes, go ahead. Uh, that phrase, unless you were born of water, mm-hmm. does that mean repentance? Oh, there's different translations, uh, or different in understandings of it. Some people uh, think it just means being born physically, like you're born. You remember how Nicodemus said, how can a man enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? So he says, okay, we'll concede that birth. You have to be born of water, physical birth, but you have to be born again, spiritual birth. I think that's one interpretation. Others say it refers to baptism, but I'm leery about that. That heads toward the Church of Christ baptismal regeneration error, and I do think it's an error um, that you have to be water baptized in order to go to heaven. I don't believe that's true, but some do, and you know uh, that's, that's their uh, take on water baptism. All right, so 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and isn't it marvelous, and we've talked about this just recently, but isn't it marvelous how that light, which is sparked within us by the, by the Holy Spirit, can never be extinguished, can never be put out. You are a new creation if you're in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and nothing can ever kill you. Now, the next step is justification. Now, I, as a kind of reformed Christian believing in the sovereignty of God, I always put regeneration before justification. That's one of the essences of the reformed faith is that God has to do something before you believe. And if God doesn't do that thing in you, you will not believe. Those that emphasize free will would put the other around. God is waiting for you to believe and exercise faith. And if you would just exercise faith, then it all starts to move. Once you exercise faith, then you'll be uh, regenerated and then everything goes on. It's a reputable position, but I just don't hold it. I think that faith is a gift of God. I think he gives it directly to people and then he sustains it every day of your life until you don't need it anymore. And by the way, there will come a time you won't need faith anymore. Isn't that an amazing thing to think of? You need it while you're here. While you don't see Jesus, but when you see him face to face, you're done with it. You don't need hope anymore then either, right? You'll be done with hope uh, because you'll have the thing you've been hoping for and who hopes for what he already has, but you will always have love, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Faith and hope are temporary, all right, but love is eternal. We're looking forward to that, but uh, at any rate, I believe regeneration precedes faith. Now, I believe the first fruit of regeneration, when God has moved inside you, is you then believe. I think that's what happens. Then all of a sudden, the gospel that's being spoken to you, that gospel makes sense. It's attractive. You love the Jesus it preaches. You believe in him. The promises become precious. Everything is different. You might have heard it for 50 times before that. You might have heard it for years. Your mother's been trying to tell you and finally somebody else tells you and she said, that's what I've been saying. But you know, all those times you never listened. You were dead. It wasn't making any sense. But suddenly the spirit moves. You have faith and you can see what you could never see before. Jesus is glorious. He's a savior. Your sins are forgiven. All of it just happens. The moment that that faith occurs, then God wipes your slate clean. You are cleansed from all your sin. All your sins are forgiven. That's justification. That moment you are declared righteous. 
Uh, so regeneration, faith, justification. You see the order? That's, that's the way I believe it happens. God moves, the faith comes, and then um, you are declared not guilty. Uh, it says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law, Romans 3.28. Justification is being completely forgiven for all sin, clothed positionally before God with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, given freely as a gift to believers in Christ. Now, when I'm sharing the gospel, I like to talk about the exchange. You give Christ your wickedness, your nastiness, your sin, and he gets along with that the penalty it deserves. You get his righteousness, which he lived out for 30 plus years on earth in con- constant obedience to the law of God, constant obedience to his parents, obedience to the uh, authorities that were instituted, never passed up a good work that the father wanted him to do, did them all. No sins of omission, no sins of commission. You get a perfect righteousness and you get to drape it on yourself or he drapes it on you like a robe. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, and that's ex- an exchange. You know, it says in... Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that beautiful exchange? Sometimes I'll even exchange coats. One thing I do when I'm sharing the gospel, though, is I always play the role of the sinner and they play the role of Christ. All right. I don't want to be overly insulting. Let's pretend you're the sinner and I'm Christ. All right. You've got this nasty disgusting coat can i borrow it and i've got this beautiful coat they're like what's wrong with my coat i like my coat all right so i just uh just try to switch it around and say you have a beautiful coat oh isn't that wonderful okay let's pretend that coat represents righteousness and my coat represents nasty they say at that point well you have a nice coat too well that's fine i can insult my own coat all right but uh, there's an exchange brevard Right. I would not say it's opposite at all. I just think that free, free will, so to speak, is subservient to it. Um, I, nobody comes into the kingdom kicking and screaming. I mean, you're not, you're not against your will believing or else you haven't been converted. What I think happens, though, at conversion, uh, regeneration, is that the will gets converted. And so that which you had not been willing before, you now will. <laughs> that which you had been rejecting, now you accept. But uh, we're not going to resolve this one. We've, we've had lots of discussions about it. And like I said, it's a reputable view. It's something that I think is within the pale of Christianity. Uh, many people believe it. But all I'm saying is that the will has always been the problem. Our wills were not willing Christ. All those times we heard the gospel, we did not choose him. We did not love him. And then uh, suddenly God works. And I think I ascribe that to God's work in us. I say, thanks be to God. You look at a very good example of this. Very, very good example is Romans uh, 6, 17. Uh, somebody take that, look it up and read it. Uh, we'll talk about it in a minute. Uh, or just for a minute here, and then we'll get back. Somebody find Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Okay, that's an incredible verse. Thanks be to God. Let me, if I can do my version. <clears throat> thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Is it okay to take out some incredible words just for simplicity's sake and get down to this? Thanks be to God that you obeyed. Do you hear it? Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed that form of 
teaching to which you were entrusted. Therefore, it's, an, it's, it's still grammatically correct to take out some of the sub, subordinate clauses and just say, thanks be to God that you obeyed. Now, you cogitate on that one. All right, why should God be praised that you obeyed? Because I think he's ultimately responsible for it. I think he gives us the ability. He changes us. He heals us. I just think, I think that rebellion sickness, isn't it? Isn't rebellion sickness? Isn't it sickness of the will? It's sickness of the, of the soul. And God is a healer. And he fixes us so that we do that which we were designed originally to do. Anyway, let's keep, let's keep going. Justification means that we are declared not guilty. We have the righteousness of Christ, the infinite righteousness of Christ, uh, kind of wired to our Swiss bank account, so to speak. You know, uh, it, you know, we are, we have become immensely wealthy in terms of righteousness. How would you like 1.6 trillion dollars wired to a personal account? What would you do with it? <laughs> get into trouble, probably. At any rate, <laughs> but this you will never get into trouble with. All right, this is pure and it's righteous and it's perfect. And if you're a Christian, you've got even more than that. You actually have infinite righteousness. You can't be more perfect. Uh, than Christ's righteousness, right? And that's what's given to us. Isn't that beautiful? We can never meditate on it enough. I actually don't think any of us fully and completely believes the gospel. I think we always want to add some works in there. We're always feeling a little bit guilty. We want to try to do some things. It's always the way it is. I'm not saying there are none that are justified. That's not what I'm saying. But we're not clear thinking the way we should about how perfectly righteous we are in Christ. Um, and I think we ought to meditate on, on it a lot. I'll tell you this, you should get something out of every time you share the gospel, even if they don't. <laughs> All right, because that's the gospel that saved you, and so you should at least celebrate. Yeah, Chuck. Right. Well, I think that that happens. And, you know, it can happen if you if you've not been getting good teaching and then you get good teaching. And it's not like you weren't saved before, but just just whole new vistas. It's like climbing a mountain and then you come to a clearing and you can see the whole valley or whatever. It's always been there, but now you get a clear understanding. But, uh, you know, that's a good a good statement. All right. The fourth part is sanctification. And it says, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness, Romans 6.19. So sanctification is that progressive growth of Christian by obedience to God through the power of the Spirit, growth into righteousness by putting sin to death. Now, let me ask a question. You're saying, well, we're just trying to share the gospel. Why do we have to know all this, right? Well, again, it's very important that they understand what's going to happen in their lives if they're genuinely saved. All right. You know, at the end of the time, after they have prayed uh, to receive Christ or trusted in him, Brevard asked a good question. Can we say you've been saved? Can we assure them um, that their sins are forgiven? Well, conditionally, I always assure conditionally because I don't know what really has happened in their hearts. Do you know how many people I've had pray the prayer with me? And after that, I saw nothing happen in their lives. They didn't come to church. They, I mean, the first step of obedience they didn't take. You know, and so if I'm sitting there and we're, we've had a wonderful time and they have been willing to pray so-called the sinner's prayer and all that, well, I'm great. I'm thrilled. I don't know that there's much more we can do together right now, but I'm not going to say, I want you to know that no matter what happens, you're going to heaven. I'm not going to say that. 
What I'm going to say is, all right, if, you're, if you have genuinely trust in Christ, this is what's going to start happening in your life. You're going to start seeing growth in holiness. You're going to start hating sin. You're going to start yearning to read the Bible. You're going to want to be with God's people. These things will happen. And if you don't see anything like that happening, then you haven't been saved. I actually th- say those things, and it's important to talk. It's a whole package that we're talking about here. All right, so I think we need to understand that. And then fourth, glorification. Um, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth the gl- uh, comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, not to us, all right? To us is th- that as well. Now, that would be an external glory, like the glory of the new heaven and new earth, the glory of Christ, the glory of the angels, you know, shining with the glory of God. That's, a, that's an outside thing. We're going to see it, and we'll, we'll, that's all true. But that's not what the verse is talking about. He says, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We will not just see glory, we will be glory. Uh, and that's something that uh, we uh, should look forward to. And that includes the body. And we will not be finished being saved until the body is also redeemed or glorified. Susan? Do you get into uh, that when you receive Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit that God sends forth the Spirit of oh, yeah. Yeah, we talk about it. I mean, but I mean, just realize if they're if they've now been born again, they're they're saved. They're they're going to want to be taught. They're going to be you know. It doesn't say in First Peter like newborn babies crave the pure milk of the word so that by it may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, First Peter two one and two. So now that they've tasted the Lord is good, they should be wanting more and more. Like tell me more. Tell me all about this new life. They're going to be hungry and thirsty for it. Uh, if they're not, then you've got to worry and wonder what really happened there. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, turn the page and continue learning. Uh, full salvation from sin is the four P's. All right. Salvation is God's gracious activity in Christ by which he frees sinners from the penalty, power, practice, and presence of sin. These are, this is for you alliteration fans, okay? All right. some, some people are real alliteration fans. P is one of the best letters to alliterate, I've learned. I've never been able to alliterate on K very well. Um, Q is tough. Uh, Z, tough to alliterate on these things, all right? But P is fertile. There's all kinds of good things. Yeah, I have before, and I said, what am I doing? I remember John MacArthur used preternatural once, and when you're starting to do that, it's time to drop, you know? <laughs> you know? I actually, I actually have done this. I've had a four-part outline, and three of them were P's, and the fourth one was S or something like that, and I was like, just to flout it, you know? I mean, it's like somebody, couldn't you find a P word? And I was like, oh, I couldn't do it. What's that? Kicking against it. Yeah, kicking against it, trying. But when MacArthur went to preternatural, I said, that's enough for me. I mean, we'll stop right there. Okay. First, save from sin's penalty, all right? The penalty of sin is clear. Eternal judgment under the wrath of God in hell. We have already discussed this in session one. On judgment day, God will demand an accurate accounting for every sin a person apart from Christ has ever committed. Revelation 20:12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Anyone who has a single unforgiven sin will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. This is called the second death and is the most terrifying penalty of our sin. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death, uh, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I think it's important, if you can, if you're in a good conversation, you've got the time, to talk about the difference between the first death and the second death. 
Because to me, I think it's very important that we understand that Christ paid the death penalty. You say, well, if he paid the death penalty, then why do Christians die? Well, you have to explain to them what the first death is and what the second death is. The first death is the separation of the soul from the body. The second death is the separation of the soul from God eternally in hell. And he came to save us from the second one, not from the first one. The first one is part of this present age. Like it says um, that death is the, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, the final enemy that will be destroyed, not the first enemy. So it's not going to be destroyed until the end of time. Until then, as it says, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and everything has become new. Well, has the old order of things passed away yet? No, not yet. And so therefore we have death and mourning and crying and pain. Even Christians do. So I think it's important to explain that so that they will know what death penalty Christ paid. All right, he paid that second death penalty, the hell penalty. That's what he paid. Uh, That penalty was paid. All right, the only way to avoid this penalty is faith in Christ. Christ suffered on the cross in our place so that we might not have to suffer this penalty. One of the most effective things you can do in witnessing is to say, all sin deserves a death penalty. Who's going to pay yours? There are only two choices. There's only two options. You know what they are, don't you? (laughs) That person or Christ. There's the only ones. And the same is true of me and it's true of every human being that walks the face of the earth. Every sin deserves a death penalty. We are under the death penalty until we come to faith in Christ. There are only two possibilities for the payment of the death penalty. We can pay it, and it's not really even a payment in hell because it's never paid, but we can be paying that penalty in hell or Christ pays it at the cross. Yes? That's a good question. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking forward as we go on in our study to be able to gather some of these things and talk about special cases. I think we ought to, like how to witness specifically to a Roman Catholic person, how to, how to witness to somebody who claims to be born again but is not living that life at all. There's no fruit, you know, and, and other special cases. Right now, I, I guess what I'd want to say is, is, is focus on the Scripture and say that, uh, that you know, uh, there's no purgatory uh, talked about in Scripture. And furthermore, we should never imagine that our suffering in some place called purgatory could be equal to the value of Christ on the cross. You see, the the whole problem with purgatory is that the cross of Christ is insufficient. You see, it'll get you 85% of the way there. The last 15% you've got to suffer in purgatory to, to achieve. That's terrible. Don't you see that? And frankly, in the end, the thing that finally gets you out is your own suffering, not Christ. That's terrible. It's such an insult to the blood of Christ. So there's a lot of different things we could say. Good question. All right. Um, God, he came also to give us perfect righteousness as a free gift. On Judgment Day, God will require perfect righteousness from each person in order to enter heaven. We've already talked about this. The only source of perfect righteousness is Jesus Christ, and the only way to receive that gift is faith, as we said in 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Romans 1.17. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The moment a sinner puts uh, faith in Christ, he or she is immediately forgiven, and declared not guilty for all sins, this is called justification. Justification happens in a moment simply by faith apart from works. It can never be taken away from the true believer. It can never be improved upon. It can never spoil or fade. It is kept in heaven for us, 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. We do not feel it. We do not see it at all. And we will not experience its full effects until judgment day itself when our verdict is read for all to hear. This is salvation from sin's penalty. How much is that worth to you? What is it worth to you to be saved from sin's penalty? 
that you will not have to go to hell. I mean, that's an incredible thing. And that's what we're offering to people. We're offering, not in our, our own name, but in Christ's name, freedom, salvation from sin's penalty completely. Secondly, save from sin's power. At the same moment that a sinner repents and trusts Christ, that person is freed forever from the authority of sin over them. They never need sin again, but are freed forever from sin's power. I already quoted this a moment ago. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, Romans 6, 17 and 18, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now you might say, if I've been set free from sin, then why... Do I still sin? Do you ever wonder that? Well, I think that we should understand this, that we have been transferred from the kingdom of sin. We're no longer citizens of the kingdom of sin. The kingdom of sin has no authority to command us to sin, but we still practice it foolishly. All right. That's the way I look at it. It's like when you become a citizen of a new country, the old country can't draft you, for example. The old country can't make you obey one of its laws or whatever. You're in a new country now. Yes. Yes, Colossians says we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the Son that God loves. What is a dominion? There's authority involved. Do you see it? Satan had, in some sense, dominion over you. You might say, how did that happen? Well, because your great, 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 whatever ancestor signed a pact with him, basically, you know, joined his rebellion. Adam joined Satan's rebellion against God. And we became, you know, servants of the devil, basically, you know, and and we were born into that servitude and Christ came to rescue us from the dominion or the authority of Satan. And don't think he doesn't have dominion authority. He does. Isn't that what it calls what what it says in in Ephesians six? It talks about the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There's a lot of authority in that language. But we've been rescued from the authority of Satan, rescued from the authority of sin. Sin cannot make you do anything. Satan cannot compel you ever again. Isn't that incredible? We are saved from sin's power. By that, we mean authority. To be a slave to sin means we have no authority to deny its commands over us. We are at sin's mercy, and sin could command us to act out rebellion against God's commands. The salvation that God brings us uh, or brings gives total freedom from the authority of sin forever enabling us to refuse whenever sin commands us to disobey God. Perhaps the best illustration of this power is the story of Cain and Abel. Both had brought offerings to God, but God had only accepted Abel's. Cain got angry at both Abel and God, prompting God to speak to Cain. Uh, Genesis 4, 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your faith face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Sin crouches daily at the door of every sinner apart from Christ. We are challenged to master it, to defeat it, to dominate it. However, apart from Christ, we have no power and no authority to say no. (laughs) The glorious good news of the gospel is stated plainly by the Apostle Paul in our Emancipation Proclamation from Sin's Power. Romans 6.14, Sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Amen. All right, we're transferred. We're not under sin's authority anymore. Okay, then you you ask the question, then why do I still do sin, right? Well, now we get to the third P. We will be saved from sin's practice. We are in the habit of sinning in, in specific ways, some in one way and some in another, right? You just do it by habit. 
you know, you've been doing it for years. It has to do with reactions to situations. When people treat you a certain way, right? When you face certain temptations. And by acting out in sin, you establish a habit pattern. And the more you do that, the stronger that habit pattern is established. That doesn't go away the moment you pray the sinner's prayer, does it? Does a person who's, let's say, addicted to nicotine immediately have no desire for a cigarette after they have prayed uh, the sinner's prayer? The answer is decidedly no. They have to fight a battle to get out from that habit, don't they? Yes, go ahead. I think in large measure, measure it's true. I think God can give you some gifts there. He can, I've heard that he can just take desire for certain things away. Just like that. He can do that. He has that power. And, and he, you, know, you could say, why doesn't he do that across the board? I would love it. You know, I really would. I actually asked him for it. I remember that prayer when I knelt down one time and based on the authority of God's word, prayed that I would never sin again. I'll never forget that. You know, it says, well, if we ask whatever we want, according to his will, I know it's his will that I never sin again. So Lord, dear Jesus, I pray that I would never sin again. In Jesus name. Amen. It didn't work. It didn't work as people who know me well can testify. All right. It did not work. All right. The fact is that that's not God's will. I wasn't actually praying according to God's will. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the end, the end was the same, but not the means to the end. What is God's will? It's that we fight. We put on our spiritual armor. We stand toe to toe and defeat it day after day after day by the power of God. That's his will. And so that's how we are delivered from sin's practice. By the gradual process of sanctification, we are given everything we need for life and godliness. The full equipment is there. You don't ever need to sin in any area again, ever. There is no temptation that comes to you that has authority to compel you. You can say no anytime you want. It doesn't matter how addictive. It doesn't matter how habitual. None of it. You are free from this moment on never to sin again. Isn't that amazing? You can say that. And, and the devil wants to lie about that very thing. Ah, sooner or later. Sooner or later, you're mine. That's a lie. I'm not his. He doesn't own me. Jesus owns me. But he's lying and we actually kind of believe it. We kind of believe it. And so we get worn out. We get tired. We say, I can't do anything but sin. I must sin. And that's just not true. And frankly, if you say it and it is true, what are you saying about yourself? If you say, I must sin, what are you saying about yourself? You're not in Christ. You're not a Christian. So I'm saying, why would you want to testify against your own soul in that matter? All right. But this is a fight, isn't it? It's a tough fight. Save from sin's practice. It's tough. You have to establish new habit patterns. You have to supplant sins with with the thing that God ordained. He ordained, you know, healthy marital relations, husband and wife, not fornication, and adultery and all that. So you have to supplant one for the other. You see what I'm saying? You have to have to take that that cavity, that emptiness inside that we're filling with all kinds of earthly or worldly things and fill them with godly things. It's a fight. But that's how we're saved from sin's practice. All right. Uh, there is the power of sin in our bodies in that they have been trained to sin through years of experience. You know, the very thing that, that enables, um, you know, an excellent basketball player to make 90% of his free throws, how does he do that? Practice. He just lines up. Coach Parrish, you want your, your players shooting free throws? How, how long? I mean, an hour after practice? Long time, right? Till they can make them over and over, and especially with 30 seconds left in the tie game, something like that. That's, I mean, and when they go to the line, I've watched these guys. I remember watching Larry Bird. I just love watching him. It was like his his face showed no emotion at all. It'd be less than a minute left. It was just machine like, and he just went up, and it looked the same as if he were doing it alone in the gym. And the way you do that 
is by endless practice. Well, what works positively there works negatively in the area of sin, right? The more you repeat something, the more it gets established. Jack, you were telling me about some pencils, remember? What were you saying about that? Getting kind of tough at that point right. to break it. So anyway, he demonstrates that when they're trying to demonstrate to them without the power of doing things right or doing things wrong, you can develop schemes, I mean, excuse me, you can develop uh, uh, habits to do good things and you can develop habits to do bad things. That's right. It works both ways. And that's the law of sowing and reaping. Another way of talking is you, you reap what you sow. And if you sow to the flesh, you reap from the flesh. If you sow to the spirit, you reap from the spirit. So there's that need constantly. Yeah, go ahead, Susan. Well, I was thinking of a personal question. But when I uh, resist a habitual sin, um, Satan will tell me, well, you will do them eventually. Right. And he doesn't make me doubt my salvation. He just makes me doubt the mm-hmm. efficacy of continuing in Christ. That's right. So what... The answer that I give in scripture. Just tell him it's a bitter lie, yeah, that he's a liar. <laughs> Romans 6. Romans 6 is your emancipation proclamation. We are no longer slaves to sin. We're not under sin, but under grace. I mean, we don't ever need to sin again. And so we just need to stand firm and say, that's a lie. I don't need to do it. I mean, so much of the Christian life is get up every day and resolving to fight again. And to me, I think that becomes the essence, not necessarily to succeed again, because we actually do have lots of times. We all stumble in many ways, James says. We do. But uh, we just need to fight and fight and fight. All right, we're about out of time. I want to finish the last P and just talk about it. I'll go back um, in two weeks. Now, remember, there's no acts next week, no Wednesday night activities, except maybe the music ministry will have some next week. I'm not sure. But we've got a good Friday service. that we'd like you all to come to. So that would be Friday evening, and you won't want to miss that. And then, of course, Easter Sunday. Um, The final P I'll talk about, saved from sin's presence. Uh, Sin won't even be there. Not not at all. Won't won't be around you. You There won't be any sinners around you. There won't be any sin at all. It's all cleaned up. Aren't you looking forward to that? I mean, isn't it amazing how in Psalm 139, after this, oh, Lord, you've searched me and know me and all that, he says, oh, that you would slay the wicked. You think, oh, is that so, you know, you think, what a positive psalm. But the thing is, in the middle of it all, it's like, aren't you tired of wickedness? Aren't you tired of temptation? Aren't you tired of, of being in this world where we're harassed by it all the time? Well, the future is, the last P, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.